come on a journey with a cinephile. episode number 35 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr here and on this episode we're going to be doing journey through the aughts number 10 as i have from 1940 son of ingagi and the 2020 film is going to be real too and then for the mini reviews section i also have real i watched and prep to see you know the sequel for it and I'll get a little bit more into that when I get into those mini reviews. There's also Ingagi, kind of the same thing. This one's a little bit more difficult to kind of talk about, and I will delve into that when I get into the mini review here in a minute. I also watch Frailty, Suicide Club, The Devil's Backbone, and Mulholland Drive. Those are all from 2001, as I'm trying to watch all of the ones for the summer series challenge that I'm doing over on the podcast under the stairs so I was trying to you know prep in order to work on my people's council responsibilities there but what I'm going to go ahead and do before I kick you over to anything else I'm going to do my monthly review for June monthly review and for my monthly review I have that I've watched 28 movies in the month of June, so I did come up short of what I wanted to do, you know, watching one movie every day, but I did watch 26 horror films, and then six of those were from 2020. Now, the horror movies that I watched in the month are Dreamcatcher, Starry Eyes, Cheerleader Camp, I Am Legend, I Monster, Chamber of Horrors, Sea Fever, Thesis, Jew on the Curse, Spiral, Final Destination, Hollow Man, You'll Find Out, We Are the Missing, the Others, Intruder, Pulse, Jaws, Session 9, The Mummy's Hand, The Bone Box, Real, Real 2, Muse, Ingagi, and Frailty. And then the 2020 ones are Dreamcatcher, Sea Fever, We Are the Missing, The Bone Box, Real 2, and Muse. Now the oldest one that I watched is actually on this episode so I won't reveal that but it's not technically a full movie that I got to see and again you'll see why when I start to delve into it. So it's a three-way tie then for Chamber of Horrors, You'll Find Out, and The Mummy, which are all part of the Journey Through the Aughts segment. The lowest rated, again, is on this episode, so I won't use that though because it's still kind of a cheat, but the lowest one then would be Cheerleader Camp. And then the highest rated horror film that I watched falls on this episode as well as I watched Jaws this month when I went to the drive-in. Now, those are all the ones that I kind of wanted to delve into, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to a musical break before I get into my mini-reviews. Mm-hmm. 
For my first mini review here, I have Real from 2015. This is written and directed by Chris Good Goodwin, and this stars Mike Estes, Mandy Myers, and Evelyn Komoski. This is a horror film from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and hovering about a three, three and a half on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, one of the sickest bloodbaths in horror movie history occurs after a deranged stalker becomes obsessed with real-life horror film critic Todd Smith. Now, this is a movie that the writer-director of Goodwin reached out to me on social media about seeing this film, as well as its sequel. And I will say, I'm a fan of found footage, so I was intrigued to see what this would be all about. And it is even more interesting to learn that it is following somebody who reviews horror movies to see you know a premise like it is in this one as you know i'm clearly writing a review and recording a review about it so i thought that was kind of an interesting thing that they do here and then just to kind of give a little bit more background information is we have two different storylines that end up converging where we are following the killer who is slasher victim 666 is the name that we get now in this movie we never actually get his real name and the interesting thing about it as well is that we actually don't get to hear 
his real voice because he's using a voice changer. And he kind of gives a little bit of background about his life. But most of the time we're following Todd, who is Todd Smith, who is portrayed by Mike Estes. And he is doing a YouTube channel where he's reviewing horror movies. And his favorite subgenre is found footage, especially the ones that are considered the lost found footage. And I believe he says that his favorite movie is The Blair Witch Project. And then his second favorite is The Last Broadcast. But there's some also other references here to things like The Driller Killer and August Underground. Which I do have to give some credit here is that they're doing some deep dives. And it seems like the director, who has, who's also the writer of this, is actually a horror fan himself to know about some of these more deep dive horror films instead of just the you know more popular ones. Now... Todd's channel doesn't go as well as he's hoping for, and he's also trying to do his own lost found footage movie called Cannibal Kitchen. But when things take a turn, though, when he ends up getting mixed up with Slasher Victim 666, who he actually sends him a camera that helps him to start filming things, but things don't necessarily go as planned for him. And what I also find to be interesting here, though, is there's some really interesting social commentary in this movie in that if you put something in front of the camera, even a mundane life, it makes it that much more interesting. As we see as Todd is spiraling and has some really deep-seated issues that he needs therapy to fix, and it ends up drawing him down a path where the two of them converge. Which I just think works for me is that we have two characters who have very different upbringings, but have very similar ways that they are handling things, and they both said they grew up a lot filming things as well which I find to be kind of a cool especially because that's kind of how my childhood was and I mean there's also this aspect of the movie where he is a horror movie reviewer which is something that I have been you know I've been doing written reviews for close to like five six years and then I've done this podcast for you know coming up on a year in November so it is just interesting to have that kind of dynamic where I could see myself as his character which is terrifying but some of the things that he does puts him into a situation where I can kind of see how things happen, especially because he is spiraling. This movie, I do think, has a little bit of filler in it, which is interesting that the movie only runs about 80 minutes. But we just get so much of Todd and not really enough about our villain here. And I think we probably need a little bit more of that. But I will say that the effects we get in this movie, even though they are backloaded, are amazing. Everything looks to be done practically. And I have to admit, there's a few times that it made me cringe while watching this, which is usually what I'm trying to go for here. And this definitely falls more into that subgenre of things like August Underground, where it looks brutally real and we have these people that are just kind of filming it. And I do have a slight issue with the ending as well, as I don't feel that Slasher Victim 666 is doing enough for him to really be the focal point of it. Um, outside of that, I think the acting feels very natural for being found footage. Nobody really stands out to it. It does give a very realistic feel through that. I thought this was a pretty solid film. I think that they probably could have developed a little bit more of our villain as we do get too much of our one character and some of the stuff that we're following isn't that interesting for me. But I still found this to be pretty solid and I'm glad I actually gave it a watch and I came in with a 7 out of 10 for this movie. And then next up I have Ingage from 1930. This is directed by William Campbell. It was written by Adam Shirk. It stars Sir Hubert Winstead, Charles Gamora, and Daniel Swain. This is an action-adventure fantasy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb, and I would say hovering in between a 1 and 1.5 and stars on Letterboxd, 
with the synopsis being an expedition enters an area of the Congo jungle to investigate reports of a gorilla worshipping tribe. Now this is a film that I got introduced to via the documentary on Shudder of Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. It goes into a bit about how racist this movie is and that there was a sequel made 10 years later called Son of Ngagi. And I will get into a little bit of why that sequel was made. But my intention is for my journey through the aughts on this episode is I'm going to actually watch that sequel. And then doing a bit of research, I figured out that on YouTube, I could get the gist of this movie as it is considered lost technically. It does sound like there is a print that is being held in the Library of Congress, as well as some private collectors have it as well. Just a little bit of information is, as background on it is that... This movie was passed off as being a legitimate trek into the African jungle, but that isn't the case. They actually illegally took footage from a silent film and then dubbed it over as this is an early sound film. And then from there, they did some filming of their own at the Los Angeles Zoo. Now, what I watched on YouTube did seem to find a couple of the Vitaphone records and play over some of the opening title cards as well as some actual photos from the African safari. This movie was shut down by the New York Better Business Bureau as they learned that the gorilla footage was faked and that one of its stars of Gamora, he was the actor in a gorilla suit and then played it in around 10 films before this and continued to do so all the way up into the 1950s as this was, you know, kind of a subgenre. Now, what I'm gauging this movie off is what I've heard and I don't mind the idea of making a safari film. It doesn't even bother me that the footage was stolen as well as being faked. When I go into a movie, I'm going into it for the art so I can overlook that. And I get that they were trying to do it to make more money. To excuse the animal reference, there's a major elephant in the room for this movie though. The major issue is that it's extremely racist. The posters that were used are touting that it has found the missing link between gorillas and man. And it is stating that it finds it deep in the... Congo jungle there's a tribe where the women are willingly going off with gorillas and mating with them. Now I can give only a bit that this is from the 1930s but to be honest we really haven't come that far as you can see some of the things on social media. The posters I see are also appalling is that they don't look that much different from advertisements that were used throughout the years as the gorillas look oddly human. And some other bits that I've included are that the tribe of pygmies that are actually used in the film are black children aging from 5 to 10 and are in makeup from the LA area. Now I'll give credit they're actually using actors of the correct ethnicity here. Some of the native women were actually white actresses in blackface. And then doubts of the authenticity of this documentary were when some of the black actresses that were actually used were recognized in the showings of this movie. Now. There's also this issue that Ngagi is supposedly an African word for gorilla, which doesn't appear in any language from the continent. And so it's hard for me to fully judge this movie because all I could really go off of is what I've researched and what I've heard in some of the recordings. And I'm fine that I didn't get to see some of the things as they, I guess they do kill an elephant and a lion, which it's hard for me to hate, but I'm not a big fan of big game hunting. And I can't even give it really that much of a higher score. The racism that it's using is saddening and it actually kind of makes me angry. So really all I'm giving points for is that this is technically a safari film, even though they stole the footage. Some parts of the story going along with that, so I gave you know half a point to each of those. And the score uses okay. It gets annoying and a bit repetitive, but I can't confirm that's supposed to actually go with it. So I came in with a 1.5 out of 10, and I'm actually kind of curious now to see 
the sequel where they kind of took everything back and that's what the plan was when that movie was being made as it does feature an all-black cast and one of the first films to do that. And next up I have Frailty from 2001. This is directed by Bill Paxton. It was written by Brant Hanley. This stars Bill Paxton, Matthew McConaughey, and Powers Booth. This is technically a crime drama thriller that is a co-production between the United States, Germany, and Italy. This is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mysterious man arrives at the offices of an FBI agent and recounts his childhood, how his religious fanatic father received visions telling him how to destroy people who were in fact demons, and demons is in quotes. Now this is a film that I remember seeing the case in the favorite section when I worked at Family Video, and one of my favorite podcasters in Mr. Watson from the Watsy Horror Party Show, as well as the one that I really got into him under was the Horror Corridor Podcast, talked very highly of this film. That was the reason that I saw this movie for the first time. I then showed it to Jamie as it fell in one of the years for the podcast under the Sarah Summer Challenge series for the 2000s that I was assigned, and I thought she might really enjoy this film. Now, as many of you know, stories of the film are what I like most, and when a film has an excellent one, you kind of just suck me in, and this has a couple of my favorite elements working here together. Now, the father in this movie is Bill Paxton, and this is taking place in 1979, where he believes all of a sudden that he gets visited by an angel who has told him that he has to go out and destroy demons. What is interesting, though, is we get a baseline of this family where they're normal, and then all of a sudden things change. So I love how we get that dichotomy of a normal family where the mother has passed away and we just have a father and his two sons and their world gets turned upside down and the older son who is Fenton Meeks portrayed by Matt O'Leary really isn't handling it very well where his younger brother Adam is more on board with what they're doing and he's portrayed by Jeremy Sumter. I almost get with him though is it could be naivety of his age from just the look of him and if you don't know me personally, I don't follow organized religion. I don't fault anyone who does, but it's just not something that I really need or agree with. But I do like how this film could be looked at as mental illness in that he could have something wrong, like schizophrenia or something, where he thinks he's actually seeing these, and in all reality, he probably could be seeing these. And it's just not actually real for everybody else. As he keeps saying that he keeps getting flashes of people being demons when he touches them and what their sins are. And then, but this is being told in the present though by Matthew McConaughey to an FBI agent of Wesley Doyle who is portrayed by Powers Booth. What I think is interesting here is the build tension is that Agent Doyle doesn't seem to believe what McConaughey is telling him, which is that he's claiming that his brother Adam is actually the God's Hand killer, which continued to work even after their father passed away, which Agent Doyle starts to ask how he knows this information, and that is what's causing him to go into the story, which I thought was a kind of cool way to progress everything. And I also find it interesting that this isn't something that stopped even after they were children, that it's continued on even past that. And there's this really good tension as they go back and forth as he starts to tell his story, and the deeper he gets into it, the more that Agent Doyle seems to be considering that it could be true. I think this film has an excellent twist to it, and it's kind of funny, as Jamie made a joke about it about halfway through, and that's about the time the first time that I saw it that I think I started to catch on a little bit as to what was happening here. But overall, the story is quite impressive for me. I thought it's edited in a way where 
the movie never got boring to me, and I'm on the edge of my seat trying to figure out what is happening, even after the second viewing of it as well, which is usually a good tell for me. thought the acting was strong across the board. I thought Paxson does a great job in this role, which is impressive that he also directed this movie. Like I said, I like how we get the baseline for him and then we start to think maybe he is crazy and then we get to see his first vit or one of his first visions but then nothing after that and it's really that's where i kind of get where it's hard to fault the younger brother for believing things and then as things go on though you start to see more and more of the truth of everything as well i even thought the two kids did a pretty solid job mcconaughey and booth really play well off of each other uh, this movie doesn't have a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't really need to be. And the blood that we do get is practical. And really, it cuts away from actually seeing the murders, but I think that works better. We don't actually need to see that for this movie to progress. And then I do like that the, vil the visions that he gets do look surreal, but I don't necessarily think they're CGI. And I think that's a good way of doing it because these, of course, are visions, not actually you know things that everybody could see. So if you couldn't tell, I'm actually just gushing over this movie. I think it's a really well done thing. And I came in with a 10 out of 10 on this movie. And then next up, I have Suicide Club from 2001. This is written and directed by Sion Sono. It stars Ryo Ishibashi, Masatoshi Nagasi, and Mai Hosho. This is a crime drama horror mystery thriller film from Japan. And this is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.3 .3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a detective is trying to find the cause of a string of suicides. Now that's pretty light on what it is, but I'm glad that it wasn't too spoiler heavy there. Now this is a movie that I first heard about from Jerry over on the podcast of Kill the Cast, as well as a bunch of other ones that I listened to. Now I know he's a big fan, and I listened to his in-depth podcast with him and his crew over there. Now, I didn't remember a lot of what they said and actually watched the sequel to this movie of Noriko's Dinner Table first. It was added to my list of films that I had never seen, but I needed to in order to, you know, round out my horror film knowledge. So I do have to thank Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs, and this is one of the years that I was assigned in 2001. Now, just to kind of give a little bit more background information is that we start this off on May 26th, and then the movie runs just a few days after that, I believe into like June 1st. And it is on the subway station where we're getting some whimsical music playing. And then a group of girls step forward on the platform when the PA is stating to stay behind the yellow line. They all then jump on the tracks in front of a moving train. Now they're crushed and blood splatters all over everyone that is in the station. And then we get this reoccurring motif in this movie of this J-pop group of dessert. Now I don't know if there's any significance or not, but the spelling of their name changes throughout. And it really kind of threw me off, but I kept writing it down every time I noticed it. So we just get a bunch of different kind of subplots going on here. We have a couple of nurses where they're working a late shift and they end up hearing through a security guard by the name of Jiro, who is Takashi Nomira. But both of them end up killing themselves. Then we also kind of shift over to these detectives that are researching the case. Now the head guy in charge is Tashiro Kuroda, who is Ishibashi. And then along working with him is... Shibushawa, who is Masatoshi Nagasi, and then also working with them is the one who I believe is in charge is Hagidanati, who is Hideo Sako, and there's also Murata, who is 
Akaji Maro. Now, at first they're just trying to treat these as mass suicides with nothing really in common, but then the more that they research into this, the more that they kind of see that there might actually be a suicide club behind it. Now, they get a little bit of help in their investigation from a woman who is going by the bat online. Now, she seems to be a hacker, and there's a website that she leads them to. And then we just get some other weird things where, like I said, we get the reoccurring motif of the J-pop group of Dessert. Then there's also this guy who is Monio Genesis Suzuki, who is portrayed by Raleigh, and he has a gang of people. And this movie just kind of gets really wild and leads us down this odd kind of journey to figure out what is going on here. And that's kind of where I'll end up kind of showing that semi-rating, but I don't necessarily know if I completely understand everything that is going on in this movie. Now, I do actually, having seen this now, want to re-listen to that Kill the Cast episode and then re-watch this along with Noriko's Dinner Table just to see if I might have missed anything. But the first thing I kind of wanted to delve into real quick would be the suicides themselves. In the beginning, one of the nurses, who is Asuko, she kind of throws out there that she's wondering if high school is too hard again. And I wouldn't be surprised if I looked into Japanese history to find that there was a string of suicides because I do know in the Asian cultures that family is important and not failing them is as well. So I'm wondering if this was something that happened in the past, but I don't think that's what this necessarily is getting at here. And I do think it's kind of creepy that the girls that killed themselves in the beginning, there's 54 of them, but there's a bunch of different high schools involved and there's not really a whole lot kind of linking them together, but there is a website that shows dots and every time somebody kills themselves before they do a dot appears on there now red is for girls and blue are for boys and then as i said there's a song of mail me from dessert that keeps playing and there's a character of misiko who is saya hagawara where she notices a cryptic message in the poster and this leads her down a path of her own discovery now kuroda also gets a call from a voice that sounds a lot like a child asking him about you know, his connection with his wife, son, and daughter, as well as the world will remain even after he's dead. But then she, the person questions if his connection with himself will still be there. Now, I think there's a commentary here on the fact that as the world goes on, we can leave our mark on it with just in general and those that we come in contact with. But do we really ever know ourselves? And do we also lose part of us as we connect with those online or in our real lives that we never actually show who we truly are to anybody? And I just kind of was digging this subliminal messaging. I thought across the board the acting was really good. The best performance, though, I'd have to say is Ishibashi, as I've seen him in a few things, and I just love his stoic nature as he's trying to stay calm as he's investigating this, but his life falls apart around him, and it's pretty heartbreaking to see. Um, I thought that Nagasi was pretty solid. Hagawara was also as well, but that per that character really doesn't show up until about halfway through the movie or so, and they don't necessarily flesh out as much as I would have liked. Aside from that, though, I thought Raleigh, the actress of Kaman, and then the rest of them just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. As for the effects for the movie, I would say for the most part, they're really good as they do seem to go practical. Now, I do know there is some CGI with some things, but there's definitely some practical stuff, and the blood spray is a little bit over the top, and I think the cinematography is pretty solid. Then the last thing I just kind of want to go over real quick would be the soundtrack, which for the most part doesn't necessarily stand out. As I said, we get this same song from Dessert a few times, and I like that reoccurring motif. And they do another musical number at the end of the movie. Now there's another one of these as well that Genesis sings a song. I wasn't expecting this right in the middle of everything, but I actually really dug that. And I'm going to try to have that as one of the songs featured on this episode. 
But overall, I don't think I necessarily completely understood what we got here. I do want to kind of delve into it a bit more on my own and, you know, listen to some other people's thoughts on it as well as rewatch the movie. But even despite that, I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And next up I have The Devil's Backbone from 2001. This is co-written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. And the other co-writers with him are Antonio Trejohores and David Munoz. This is starring Marisa Paradis, Eduardo Noriega, and Frederico Lupi. This is a drama horror film from Mexico and Spain. This is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after Carlos, a 12-year-old whose father has died in the Spanish Civil War, arrives at an ominous orf boys' orphanage. He discovers the school is haunted and has many dark secrets, which he must uncover. Now, this is a movie that came on my radar when the Gateway Film Center was doing an appreciation month for Guillermo del Toro and showing a few of his films. This is the only one that I unfortunately had to miss due to prior commitments. And it is one, though, that I have heard on podcasts a few different times, so it was one that's been on my list to see for a little while. And then again, I have to thank Duncan and the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs, as this made me, you know, put this up on the top of my list and watch this one. Now, this is as an interesting opening scene as... It's already said in the synopsis that this is during the Spanish Civil War, and it's a dark and stormy night where we're in a plane as it drops a bomb, and then we follow it cutting to a boy who is bleeding out. And then the question is posed to us is, what is a ghost? And this is something that is tragedy doomed to live over and over. Now, we end up getting Carlos as he comes to this orphanage, and it is run by Carmen, who is Paradis, and she's aided by Dr. Cazares, who is Lupi as well as Alma and another woman named Cochita. And it is here that the boys speak of a spirit, the one who sighs. And there's a boy who's gone missing who is Santi. And what they end up trying to think is that there are some boys that try to run away, but this is so far away from the nearest town that many of them get lost and never end up finding anywhere or things along that nature. But it is interesting, though, is... I don't know a whole lot about the Spanish Civil War, but I do know that from the movies that I've seen from Del Toro... He seems to be on the side of the what was considered the rebels that were trying to overthrow the nationalists. And much like his other film that kind of follows this on Pan's Labyrinth, we do get a dark fairy tale feel here. But this one, not so much as that one, as this one does have a more of a gothic theme to it, which I also do like. And a lot of that comes from the music we get is very orchestral, which helps in that. But the other thing is that we have a very real story with real people, but the ghosts are kind of a secondary thing. And they're there to kind of push our heroes and our characters into trying to solve the mystery of their death as well as to try to fix things. As we do have a character here of Jacinto, who is Noriega. Now, he's a former boy that was at this orphanage, but he's never gone anywhere and has kind of aged out where he can kind of do his own thing now. But we see that he's harboring a lot of like hatred inside of him and that he's very mean and it's interesting because i saw the same character in another movie thesis where that's another one where from a good portion of it you think he might be a bad character and then there's times where we see that he might not be nearly as bad but he's also got some tragic things here is that carmen is using him for sex and she's not necessarily treating him as a person so i kind of feel understanding how he's lashing out towards these younger boys that are there and he's also somewhat embarrassed by how tragic of a life he's had. 
And she even comments on him at one point being a prince with no nation, which I take it is that he feels powerful and somewhat entitled, but he doesn't really have anything to rule over. And he's very obsessed with the gold that is being kept here that I believe the rebels have given to them. As many of these children here are sons of men that have died fighting. And I think that all kind of works there. And this has an interesting kind of climax in how everything plays out. As I was saying that the ghosts are there to kind of help the people that are good in trying to survive what is going down. Now, I do feel that the acting is very strong in this movie. I really liked the portrayal of Jacinto. I thought Carmen does really well at being a flawed character as well as she is using him. But she's also there to kind of do good things. I thought the character of Dr. Casares was very good as well. He's there to help the children, but he's also been in love with Carmen even before her husband passed away. But he's kind of pushed to the side for the most part, and I kind of feel bad for him. I was very impressed with the actor of Fernando Tavelli, as he plays Carlos, is for somebody as young as he was during this movie, I thought he did a really good job, and it's tough for how young he is at times, I would say. And the same could also be fed for another boy named Jaime, who is portrayed by Inigo Garcias, as he's one that at first it seems to be like a bully, but then we realize he's harboring a pretty dark secret, and somebody his age probably should not have to have something like that weighing on him, so I think he does good there. I do think this movie does run a bit long, though. I think this could have been trimmed down to about an hour and a half, and it would have ran tighter for me, as I feel like we just kind of linger on some things a little bit too long. I think the practical effects we get in this movie are really good. I do have some issue with the CGI, as it doesn't necessarily hold up, but I understand what they're working with there. The cinematography is good. I like the soundtrack. I just think that overall, this is a really good movie with an interesting story that they're trying to tell us, and I came in with an 8.5 out of 10 for this movie. And for the last movie that I watched this week is Mulholland Drive from 2001. This is written and directed by David Lynch. It stars Naomi Watts, Laura Haring, and Justin Thoreau. This is technically a drama mystery thriller from the United States and France. This is currently sitting on an 8.0 on IMDb and a 4.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac, she and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. Now, this was a film that I vaguely remember when it came out in 2001. I didn't see it then and really didn't know much about it, but it wasn't until I was in college and at the time I was still a pretty novice film fan in general that I started to learn who David Lynch was. And then in colleges when and beyond when I really started to study the history of film and got introduced to him and some of his odd works. I will say this one feels up there with like Blue Velvet as being one that I could kind of understand a little bit more than some of his other ones. Now, I don't think I necessarily understand completely everything, but as the synopsis stated, there is a car wreck which renders the character of Laura Haring's playing where she doesn't remember who she is now she ends up taking on the name Rita because when she's in a bathroom she sees a poster for Rita Hayworth being in a movie of Gilda and she takes the name on of Rita and it's interesting here is that this kind of feels like a neo-noir which I think is interesting I believe Gilda probably came out in the 50s so I think they're paying homage there but this seems like a neo-noir film where in a sense this character of Rita is almost our femme fatale 
And I also think that David Lynch is paying homage to some of these other things because there's a character of Adam, who is a director played by Thoreau, that he is making a 1950s film from what it looks like. And I think that's another kind of nod to this whole thing here. But this is a big mystery. We have all these different little subplots that are going on. And I was impressed because as I'm watching this, I'm like, okay, I know this is all going to kind of wrote back in on itself and they're all going to be somehow interconnected but i just love the reveal and because i'm only doing a mini review here i don't want to go ahead and go into a spoiler section as to what's going on but there is a lot you can really kind of delve into and talk about with this movie um i've really talked a whole lot about it but naomi watts plays betty who is a young aspiring actress starlet type thing where she gets off of a plane i love that when she arrives there Everything is so bright and cheery and the music is just kind of upbeat and uplifting where you make it think like, yeah, she's arriving here and you know she's going to go on to be a movie star. Now she ends up befriending Rita and trying to help her piece together everything with her life. But the more and more that we kind of go down this path, the more that we see from her and we get to see her go to an audition where she ends up killing this performance here and... But she ends up finding out from a casting agent who is also sitting in on it that there's a, probably a good chance that this movie is never going to get made. But regardless, we get to see that she does have some acting chops. But the more and more that we kind of learn about everything, everything necessarily isn't as it seems. And I think that's a really good job for this movie. If I have to give any sort of credit here, I would say that the acting is really on point in my opinion. Is that we have, you know, Naomi Watts I think kills this. It might be my favorite performance aside from The Ring for her. She starts out with such a nice, nice and naive young girl, but she also portrays another character of Diane that when we see everything play out is such a different nature of a character. I thought Haring did a really good job along with Throw was also good in my opinion. And I also like the cameos by Bonnie Ahrens, Dan Hadia, who I've seen in a lot of things. We have Melissa George in a small role. We have, I think it's Dan Pellegrino, Billy Ray Cyrus is in this, Lee Grant, and the James and the great James Karen is also in here. And also we have Robert Forster in a smaller role as well. Like I said, this is just a really interesting film. I had a lot of fun watching this. I don't necessarily know if it's my favorite film from David Lynch, but it's really up there as being a really good one in my opinion. I don't necessarily know if I understand everything, but I do, like I said, feel like this is one that I kind of picked up on more of things as it's... A lot less surreal than some of his other stuff while still having that surreal feel, but I came in with a 9 out of 10 on this one. Now what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Take him away. Last week you ate all the roast stuff that was left, bones and all. Bloomy here. Bob hasn't been dead since the family burned, and that too has made it very hard. And the finance company has threatened to take our new car. Yes, that's what I thought. Uh, where is Bob? I was hoping to find him here. 
He'll be here in just a moment. He just went to the market just around the corner. Well, that's fine. I want to talk to you two about giving up this old place and moving into better quarters. Yes, but what about the will? Don't worry about that. I'm the executor, you know, and I can take care of that very easily. In fact, I've already made a deal for this place, and all we need is your signature. I would have to talk that over with Bob. Oh, excuse me, please. I have something in on the stove cooking. You just sit right down and make yourself at home. Bob will be back in a jiffy. Madam. Thanks. Did you see Attorney Bradshaw? No, where is he? He's right in the sitting room. Well, that's funny. I didn't see him. Well, I'll go right in and apologize. And ask him to stay for lunch.
And for my first feature review for this week is going to be Son of Ngagi. This came out in 1940. This was directed by Richard C. Kahn. It was written by Spencer Williams. It stars Zach Williams, Laura Bowman, and Alfred Grant. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd with a newlywed couple is visited by a strange old woman who harbors a secret about the young girl's father. Now this is a movie that much like the original I heard about on the Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror documentary. When I saw this popped up on my list for 1941 films for my Journey Through the Ought segment, I figured that I would you know, give it a go. I knew the historical significance coming in because of that doc. And having earlier in the week brushed up, of course, on Ngagi, as you heard earlier on this episode. Now, we kicked this off at a wedding of Robert, Lindsay, and Eleanor. Now, some of the guests include Bradshaw, who is Early Morris, who is a lawyer. I should also point out that Robert is portrayed by Alfred Grant, while Eleanor is Daisy Buford. There's also Detective Nelson, who is portrayed by the writer Spencer Williams. And then there's also a Dr. Helen Jackson, who is Laura Bowman. Now, Helen tells Bradshaw she would like him to come over so she could draw up a will. We see that she's quite frugal and standoffish, and she does agree, though, that she will do this for a price of $5. Now, the couple thinks they've tricked everybody and that they've gone off on their honeymoon, but their friends aren't fooled. They all show up to the newlyweds' house for a party. But everything ends, though, when the foundry that Robert works at goes up in flames. Some of the men try to go help to try to save his job and the foundry itself. And then Eleanor, while everybody is gone, is visited by Dr. Jackson. She thanks Eleanor for inviting her. And she's actually really touched by this as she seems to be somewhat shunned, but I also think it's because she isolates herself from everybody in the town. And then we also get to see that the younger woman is quite fond of her. It is revealed that Dr. Jackson knew Eleanor's father before he passed away and she gives her a gift that he had given her long ago. Now, once Dr. Jackson returns home, her brother Zeno, who was portrayed by Arthur Ray, shows up to her house. It is well known that Dr. Jackson is hoarding a fortune, and he's there to relieve her of half of it as he feels that he's due. Dr. Jackson, though, is, has a much bigger secret in her basement that changes Zeno's mind, and he flees. The secret, though, ends up killing her, and then there's a spree of other deaths that bring Eleanor, Robert, and the rest back to this house. The couple also needs to clear their name as they're the prime suspect from the evidence that is presented. Now, that's where I'm going to leave this recap because to be honest, there isn't a whole lot to this story. It is really quite basic and it is a shame though as I feel there's some opportunities here for some subplots to deepen the story, but for whatever reason they just didn't flesh it out. I'm wondering as I've read a little bit, is it's budgetary reasons? If you didn't hear or read my review of the original film here on this podcast, it is a racist work that was claiming that Ngagi means gorilla in Africa in one of the languages, you know, from the continent. In that movie, they're trying to claim that the missing link is that of a tribe of women are mating with apes. This movie is picking up where there's one of these offspring named Ingina, who is Zach Williams. Now that I'm getting at this is that Dr. Jackson seemed to have loved Eleanor's father before he married her mother and the two passed away in a tragic accident. Dr. Jackson went on a mission to Africa, and when she came back, she had brought gold and something else. No one knows about what this other thing that she brought back, and she has this whole elaborate basement set up in order to hide the secret. 
This is where I feel they could have developed and deepened the story a little bit more. Eleanor states that she thinks Dr. Jackson loved her father. We see that she does an experiment, and I'm assuming it has to do with Najina. Since this runs just over an hour, I think a subplot, like I was saying, would have would have helped here, and working a bit more on what they've established would have helped. One of the biggest draws for this movie, though, is that it took a racist film in the original and made it their own. Every actor in this movie is black, and they're in prominent roles like doctors, lawyers, detectives, and the chief of police, even. I'm given credit for being one of the first to do that, which, if my memory serves, this is the first creature feature that had this type of cast, and it really does add an element, and I will give, you know, its due there. But then to shift this over to the acting, as much as it pains me to say for the praise of everyone selected in the movie, no one really is all that good though. I think that Bowman is fine. She actually probably plays the role best out of anybody as she shows range. At first she's mean and standoffish, but then softens due to the kindness of Eleanor. Buford and Ray are fine in their roles. Part of the problem is that I want one of them to be the hero and they're not. Spencer Williams brings some humor to the role that didn't necessarily work for me. It is interesting though that he also wrote the screenplay as I said. Zach Williams has some good size for the creature and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The last few things here to go over would be that I thought the look of Najina was pretty solid. They make him up to look like he's part ape and part human and I was pretty impressed. And aside from that, the print wasn't in the greatest shape. So it kind of makes it hard to see everything else. And you can tell this is filmed on a stage as none of the backdrops actually look all that real. It also has a low running time, which is nice, but I did want a bit more, and the soundtrack was fine as well. And it does feature the singing quartet of the four toppers who are in the credits. And now with that said, I really wish I had more that I could brag this movie up about. I think that this was great that they made it to take back what the original film did. The racist film getting a sequel with an all-black cast is great to me. I love that idea. I just feel that this movie was lacking, though, a subplot to really help deepen it. I think the acting was fine and the effects were lacking, but I didn't really have any complaints. This movie was also probably didn't get more, any help that it had to pass the censorship boards with the Brain Act. Regardless, I enjoyed this as much as I could and, I, and much more than the original one, to be honest. But I do have to say that this is still a below average movie for me because it's just lacking too many things for me to put it over that average point. So I had to come in with a 4.5 out of 10. And I'm not going to do a spoiler section because I don't feel like it really needs that. But I do have some trivia that I wanted to share. Like, the character of the rich Dr. Helen Jackson is inspired by the real-life millionaire miser Hetty Green, who lived from 1834 to 1916. The title is a take off of the notorious film Ngagi from 1930 that was made nearly a decade earlier. This is believed to be the only horror movie with, or what was then called, an all-colored cast. The working title was House of Horror. And Dr. Jackson calls her assistant Ingina, a name which means one who serves in the Kikuyu language spoken in Kenya. Now that's all I really wanted to share for this film. I know this is kind of short. I just don't really have any more that I can really kind of add or to kind of flesh this out even more. As I said, I don't really necessarily want to do a step-by-step walkthrough of the movie. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my second featured review. I wonder if we can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. No, I think Humpty Dumpty's never gonna get back together again. And I don't know. Nobody's ever gonna recognize you. It was Humpty Dumpty. We just got finished watching the real movie. A little bit sketchy. The McCuddles or some family like that. Ethan's really onto this one. Thinks it's real as shit. So we're scoping out the area. 
We noticed a few spots from Toronto. It's her keeping up to this motherfucker. If we die tonight, um, I just want to say, Mom, I love you. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> any final words, guys? Um, <laughs> you should be the director. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would actually. You actually know what you're doing. Much better understanding of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> SV. Yeah. I don't get this whole thing. What does SV? And for my second feature review on this episode, it is going to be Real 2 from 2020. This was written and directed as well by Chris Good Goodwin. This stars Stephanie Jascott, Octavia. Kalazaska and Michael Lake. This is a horror film from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb and hovering probably at about a 2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after being convinced his first movie, Real, wasn't a blockbuster success because it starred a man, director slasher victim 666 makes it his personal mission to find the perfect woman to star in Real 2. Now, I actually watched this movie back to back with the original. I've already kind of said on that the review for real that is in the mini section is that Goodwin reached out to me via social media to check it out and I was intrigued by the premise of both of these movies. This also worked out well as I could watch this as part of my Journey Through the Yacht segment here on the podcast for my 2020 release as well as to keep up with my pace to make sure that I get to 100 on the year. This one picks up right where the first one leaves off. We get to see that what happened to the previous star of Todd Smith and Slasher Victim 666 gets those up to speed who didn't see the original film, and it kind of fills in more about his childhood. In this one as well, his voice is altered, but we do realize that his first name is John and claims, much like Todd, that he was going to be the greatest director of all time. Going along with this, we get some montage sequences of violent images and paintings to get us up to speed as well. And this movie is taking it on much more of a meta angle than the original, which works for me. It is again told with a prologue, chapters, and epilogue to our story. The prologue is Slasher Victim 666 trying to figure out what happened and why he isn't more famous from his first victim. As an artist who is putting himself out there for critique, I love what they're doing here. We do get to hear a podcast talking about his first film, as well as a montage of reviews, both good and bad. And I think the podcast is Horror Movie Review, if my memory serves. Goodwin has his finger on the pulse of the film and horror industry, as we get a woman who goes on and on about how movies need to have a female lead, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but this reasoning that this woman is using isn't very good, to be honest. And this becomes the focus of Slasher Victim 666 to try to find a woman lead for this. Now, from here, we get some really creepy vibes as he is auditioning a bunch of women at 666 Ontario Street. And I use the word audition very loosely, but it is an apartment that he is renting. Now, this section of the movie really gave me a creepy feel as well because it gives off a vibe of like the documentary on Netflix, The Don't Fuck With Cats. And I know there was a reference in the previous film about it. And this building from the outside looks exactly like the one in that real life, you know, crime. And it's also fitting as both of these are taking place in Ontario, as, in Toronto as well. Now there's another montage of all the women that he kills, but he just can't seem to find the right one. Now things all change when he gets an assistant, who is Jane, portrayed by Jessica. 
She is going to film school and wants to make a movie. Now, Slasher Victim 666 falls for her and needs her help. And now, early on, she thinks that everything they're doing is just a movie. Now, things get a bit confusing here for a stretch, if I'm going to be honest. We get introduced to a Lena Sobaska, who is Octavia Kaliska. And she is the sister of Jane, whose real name is Mila. And she is also living in Toronto and loaned her sister money to go to school. Lena is also nosy and has been spying on what her sister is doing. She's dating an Ethan Turner who is Lake, who she isn't very nice to him, but there seems to be this really weird thing going on with her friend who is always over, it feels like, of Patton Rice, who is Tylen Essery. Now, Lena confronts her sister a couple times, and it takes a turn, as I said, when Jane realizes the things that Slasher Victim 666 is doing aren't actually happening. And we also see that he has an opportunity as Lena could become his star, but he needs Jane to help him if he's going to truly make his masterpiece. Now, this sequel does do some things that are new that I really enjoyed. The first is how creepy they establish the villain at times. I like that he's really trying to make the best movie possible, but he isn't just found his right star yet. It is interesting as the first movie, he doesn't actually kill the victim as he really just films it. And sorry if that's a little bit of a spoiler there, but once you kind of see things play out, it's not really that big of a deal. Now this movie, we do get to see a slew of women and he is killing pretty much all of them. And I do like that, and that aspect really works for me. We get to see more of the same from the first movie where we get to meet our victims from found, from footage that they filmed themselves. And the problem I have here is that I think it gets a bit too confusing because we just jump into it. But I will say it does settle in and then everything kind of fits. Now, during my recap, I say that they go more meta here. And we also get much deeper film knowledge from Goodwin, which is pretty impressive. I loved when Ethan and Patton are trying to figure out what happened to Lena, and the first clue they're given is a videotape of Umberto Lindsay's Spasma, which is a movie that I plan on watching very soon. There's a list of 24 Giallo films that are also included, like Deep Red, Blood and Black Lace, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and A Lizard and Woman's Skin, just to name some of the ones on the list. What makes it even better, though, is this is part of the movie plays like a Giallo film, as these two guys who aren't cops, are investigating what happened to Lena instead of actually involving the police. This is a very popular trope for those who don't know for a Giallo film, and I kind of like how they're playing with that concept. This movie runs a bit too long, though, if I'm going to be honest. I think we get more filler here, again, than what we need. It is balanced well with the blood, gore, and attacks, as those are throughout this time. It does just feel like, at times, they were filmed some like good stuff that they just couldn't cut. And on top of that... When Slasher Victim 666 is trying to get Jane back, he decides to make a movie recap in his life to explain it to her. Now, he does hire a trope of actors to play the parts of him and his family, and this really just drug on and on for me. And it also makes the villain seem a bit dopey here at times, which I wasn't the big fan of, and I think it's better when we kind of kept him a bit more in the shadows where he could establish his character to be a little bit more creepy. Something that did work a lot better for me were the effects. I give the nod to the original film for being a little bit better into that climax, but this one just gives us so much more and it amps up the body count. That is really what you want for a sequel and it delivers there. This movie does have a much creepier ending sequence, if I'm going to be honest, and I actually had a warning at the beginning of this that if you have epilepsy or are prone to flashing lights that you might want to keep that in mind. And I bring that up because there is a strobe light as well as we get multiple victims that are being tortured before they're killed. 
Now, the last thing I really wanted to go over here would be the acting. Again, much like the original, no one really stood out to me, which is good for a found footage film. I think most everyone is natural and they play realistic characters. I will admit, I did get a bit confused with Lena and her relationship with Ethan and Patton, but that does kind of figure itself out. If I have any gripes, it's with the role of the, or the villain here. The use of masks and whatnot are great, but I just don't love how the character is played in this one. And especially, I don't necessarily like what they do with Jane, as she just comes off as really dumb. And I think eventually you'd catch on a little bit quicker than she does, but I mean, I digress, because they are trying to make a movie. Now, Slasher Victim 666 family is creepy again, and I still have an issue that a lot of the stuff being done in the ending sequence, again, are done by them. This movie, not so much for what we get leading up to it, but it does make a lot more sense, so I'm alright with, you know, having them involved, just to kind of make the sequence even more creepy. Now, with that said, much like the original one, this movie does do some really good things, and some of them just don't necessarily work for me. I really like the concept that Slasher Victim 666 thinks that he's a great director and that he's not getting the accolades he deserves, as this is something you see with a lot of directors who are even more prominent than him. The meta aspects of the film industry and the horror genre is a big plus for me. I think the acting is believable for the most part, and the effects are practical, which is great. It is a perk that they ramp them up as well. There's a few missteps here and there, and I think that there's a little bit too much filler, to be honest. The soundtrack is mostly ambient, which I'm all for in a movie like this, and the selections, aside from that, don't necessarily work as well as the ones they did in the original, but they don't ruin anything. It is a step down for me, but still over average, and I would recommend both of these. If you like some of the more gory found footage films like August Underground or stuff like that, as I think this definitely is a worthy successor to movies like that for sure. So I came in with a 6 out of 10 for this sequel here, and I just have a little bit of trivia that I found online, is that the pictures under the four chapter headings co correspond to the four suits of the tarot. Reel 2 is dedicated to the director Toby Hooper. This is technically the second movie of director slasher victim 666. These were inspired by the movies of Kenneth Anger. And during the climax, Doug McCuddle, who I believe is the father of our villain, is quoting William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And wasn't a whole lot on there. I just kind of wanted to share those little aspects there. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I close out the show. Darkness is your ally. You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. Molded by it. <laughs> oh, man, we're fucked. We're fucked. I'm getting out of here. No, no, no. Ain't no helping me. I just became the geography. When I watch your pain and feel you bleed. Now why you wait to bother me? A part of me, a progeny, but me. The chronic fuels me consciously. A man for seek when a prophet speak. But I'm not who you think when I'm off that way. I probably need to apologize for all the shit I did for my degree. They won't admit they doubted him. A part of you, I got a bone to pick with anybody who disregarded me. I got a lot of rage inside of here. And I'm waiting to explore and reappear. We will come for you in your sleep oh, When you least expect him Attack one He will come for you in your sleep oh, When you least expect him 
with the darkness All he ever felt was heartless I'm in hell freaking out regardless Now he's just a garbage copy All he wanted was a body So I let him go inside me Thinking there's no harm in it probably But the demon controls my hobby I can feel the hate around me Every time I move about him Anywhere I go I find it right behind me Why? There's a specter that's around me Kinda like a residual haunting Your resistance is exhausting I can't seem to climb about it Fuck that one He will come for you in your sleep Or when you least expect him Attack one He will come for you in your sleep Or when you least expect him Inside you'll feel a bleed And it will make you crazy Attack one He will come for you in your sleep Or when you least expect him Attack one He will come for you in your sleep Or when you Ain't no stranger to the scam Wants to grow in on your fears We predict a different way Burning everything you hear Inside your ears Now I'm here 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 Attack one He will come for you in your sleep For when you least expect him Attack one I want to thank everybody for listening to episode number 35 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close everything out, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of my past episodes, that is Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, if you want to become friends with me, just go ahead and add me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, David OSU. Instagram, David OSU87. And if you want to download the FlickChat app, that is available on iOS and Android. And if you download that, you can use the join code of Journey with a Cinephile, all one word, to connect with me on there. And then the last thing I would ask is that whatever podcatching device you are listening to this on, if you could go ahead and subscribe so you never miss an episode, and if there's an ability to rate or review, I would definitely ask if you could do that, just so I can kind of get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can make this the best show possible. Now, for the next episode, it's going to be another Journey Through the Aughts one. I've already recorded and watched the movie that's going to be the 2020 release, which is going to be Muse or under the alternate title of Legend of the Muse. And then for the 1940s film, I only have two more left on it. I've seen one of them previously, and then the other one is a new one, so I'm going to try to watch the new, the other one, not necessarily a new one because it's from 1940, but one that I've never seen before. And that one is under, I believe it's the Drums of Fu Manchu is the name of that one. 
and it's going to be kind of a serial that is all compiled into one film from what I've gathered. So I'm going to try to do that marathon there in prep for the next show. But I will have an episode out for you next week. And what I want to go ahead and do is thank you for listening and coming on this journey with me. Whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time doing it and be safe out there. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.